0: Talking history. This is
1: News Talk.
2: We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. It's one small step for man, one diaphragm for mankind.
0: Auktiloin, Argus,
1: Good evening and welcome We're talking history On News Talk 106-108 With me Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show We're looking at the life and death Of King Charles I And we'll be finding out How the first monarch to bear the name Lost his throne and his head You can email us your thoughts and views Talkinghistory at Newstalk.com And we'd love to hear from you Last week we looked at the culture, society And religion of ancient Rome And found out about chariot races And gladiators And what life was like for women And if you want to listen back to this Or to any of our older shows just go to the News Talk app Powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Born in Scotland in 1600 the subject of tonight's show became King Charles I in 1625 upon the death of his father James I. Viewed by his opponents as an absolute monarch and distrusted because of his marriage to a Catholic Princess Henrietta Maria of France Charles became embroiled in a series of clashes with Parliament which culminated in the outbreak of civil war in the 1640s. Defeated and then recaptured after an escape Charles was put on trial and found guilty of high treason in January 1649 and beheaded. The monarchy was abolished and England became a republic, although this was short lived and his son returned in 1660 as King Charles II. And so in tonight's show we want to explore the life, Death and legacy of the first English monarch to bear the name Charles. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Leanda Delisle is an historian, writer and broadcaster and is the author of the award-winning White King, The Tragedy of Charles I. I'm also joined by Professor Aaron Griffey, Associate Professor in Art History at the University of Auckland in New Zealand and the author of On Display, Henrietta Maria and the Materials of Magnificence at the Stuart Court and the editor of Henrietta Maria, Piety Politics and and Patronage And later in the show We'll also be joined by David Pryor The Head of Public Services And Outreach At the UK Parliamentary Archives Well you are all very welcome And Leanda I might begin with you And I might begin with I suppose The, the legacy of Charles I The way he was remembered The mythology That sprung up around him Because for some people He was a martyr Who was murdered For others He was a murderer himself Who deserved the punishment That he received
0: uh, yes, that's correct. Um, uh, Charles uh, was accused even of, um, of the murder of his of his own father, uh, with his uh, with his father's favourite, uh, the Duke of Buckingham. Um, Buckingham had been accused of this uh, right at the beginning of Charles's reign, and uh, and in the end of Charles's reign, he was accused of of, of being complicit in supposedly uh, poisoning his own father. Um, so so, there, was, so, so was that, there was that direct accusation of murder, and then there was also the implication that he, had, uh, he was accused of having started the civil war, and so in a, in a sense, all the deaths that had followed were a kind of um, murder. Um, on the other hand, others believed uh, as the king, which was uh, believed in the way that the king presented himself at the end of his life, which was as a, as a man who was dying uh, for the rights of uh, the people. It might be slightly bizarre, but that's what he—that's what he believed, and—and and indeed, as a martyr for the um, Church of England, as his father left it.
1: And your book received so much widespread acclaim and awards and so on. And in part, I think it was because it was separating the man from the myth. It was, uh, it was showing the significance and the importance of his wife, Henrietta Maria. And it was neither uh, destroying his reputation or, or trying to rehabilitate him, but trying to place him in the context of, of what was happening and understanding him based on these archival records.
0: No, that's exactly right. He was about trying to understand understand why he behaved he, the way he did, um, both as a, because of his own kind of personality um, and, 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 and in the context of the times. And I think it's important because it's, in, it's interesting how much more popular the Tudors have been than the Stuarts amongst the general public. And I think it's, that there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that this, <laughs> women have been sort of largely written out of this history, which... Uh, makes it much less interesting, um, which, which is also absurd. And uh, secondly, because Charles has become uh, such a sort of hate figure, really, and a kind of cartoon uh, version of, of reality. And if he was such a kind of stupid, idiot, you know, silly little man, then it doesn't make him a very interesting one. And it doesn't make his enemies very interesting either, because it's obviously not so exciting if you're up against up against some kind of you know worthless person and worthless ideas, uh, and uh, so I think it's important for people to understand that this man this was a man who had strengths as well as weaknesses, um, virtues as well as as, as, as well as, as, as well of as the opposite
1: and Leander, what I found interesting, of course, was that Charles started off as the spare. he was the younger son, and it was only when his brother died in sixteen twelve that uh, Charles suddenly became became the heir to the throne.
0: That's true. And people have made a great deal of that. They say, oh, if only the elder brother had lived, you know, things would have been so much better. And there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to believe that. His elder brother is actually rather a charmless individual. Um, but um, uh, this kind of, sort of a myth that his elder brother would, would have been a much better king was used essentially as a stick to beat him with or to beat his reputation with. know, um, it sort of said, oh, Charles wasn't brought up to be a king. And Charles was, I think, 11 or something when his brother died. Henry VIII was around. You know, Henry VIII was a was a spare, um, and there was nothing very uh, sort of weak weak about um, Henry VIII. I think we can we can agree. So it wasn't particularly relevant that he was the spare. Um, He you know spent his teenage years as the heir. uh, He was raised to be king by his father, um, and he was uh, fully prepared you know for 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 kingship when he became. King at 25, I mean, Henry VIII was only
1: 18. And there's a phrase that's still used today, uh, someone being a whipping boy, and there is a story about a whipping boy being there when Charles was a boy, that his father would, would whip uh, a, a, another boy if Charles did anything wrong. But that's part of the mythology that developed years after the death.
0: Yes, it's very interesting how this happens. You see it happening in, with all sorts of, all sorts of um, people and, and reigns. And uh, exactly, so I suppose the idea that the idea was that um Charles was sort of you know, spoiled and silly and that somebody else always had to pay for his his sin. So later on England and Scotland and, and Ireland indeed had to pay for his for his mistakes and his sin. But in fact, um this was this was a this was uh, an entirely sort of invented invented story and was originally about uh, um Edward the sixth. Um, and it and it was just it's just it was just made up.
1: Leanda, you know, usually I try to stay neutral when we're doing our debates and discussions and I, you know, I probe and I ask different questions and tease it out. But reading about Charles, I couldn't help feeling that he was the architect of a lot of his own misfortunes, that I couldn't help feeling that he was to blame for, you know, you know, misjudging Parliament for being too for being too arrogant in how he believed he would be able to pursue his wars and and not need uh, to secure uh, parliamentary support for the funding that at so many occasions in the 1620s, the 1630s, and even in the 1640s, when uh, you have the civil wars and you have his arrest and so on, he definitely seems that when it comes to the crucial moment to make the wrong decision.
0: Yes, I mean he was a failed king. I mean that's just that's just a fact, um, and um, he he did make mistakes. I mean, in life, you know, there's all there's an element of you know luck and bad luck, and and, um, and Charles wasn't necessarily uh, blessed always with uh, with good luck, but um, he did time and again um, make mistakes. It's interesting the degree to which uh, his wife has been unfairly blamed for his mistakes. Uh, and what is completely untrue is one of his mistakes was not uh, was not that he listen, listened to his wife too much, which is one of the great myths. If anything, he didn't listen to her enough. Um, and um, she was much more, a much more practical uh, person than he was, and a, much, and a much better judge, I would say, of, of people than Charles. But um, that probably wasn't very difficult.
1: Yeah, Erin, tell us about Henrietta Maria. She does seem to have been a remarkable figure, uh, but blamed because she was a Catholic, because, I suppose, because she was a foreigner as well. She was French. And uh, she certainly, uh, in a lot of the histories uh, in the 17th century and afterwards, was portrayed as, as either the power behind the throne or as this weak woman or as this, you know, in, in different ways, but basically to blame for a lot of the things that went wrong.
3: Yes, well, really the stage was set. When they married. So, this is the first cross confessional marriage um, in early modern Europe. Um, you have a Protestant um, king marrying a um, Catholic um, Bourbon princess. And so, um, there's huge anxiety in England about the, him marrying a Catholic. And those fears, they're truly borne out um, in what happens. And they don't just get a Catholic; they get a Catholic who is utterly committed to the Catholic cause, um, you know, throughout her entire life. And the the perception, um, which was you know widely voiced at the time, you know that she, you know, that there was this popish plot. That, that really was the perception. And she didn't do too much to quell that perception because that really is what she was trying to do. She did want um, to not just promote the Catholic cause, but in, in her mind, I think she really did want um, a Catholic England.
1: And you do see her taking a role in politics and as well as in various kind of cultural activities in the period.
3: That's precisely right. Yes. So um, in politics, just like Leon said, I mean she's um, incredibly tactical in advising him about um, a, um, an incredible level of detail in terms of strategy during the civil wars. She's advising him on who to appoint as a privy councilor. Um, she's involved in sort of that level of political negotiation. But she's also a cultural force in her own right, too. She has incredibly refined taste. She is uh, a patron of the visual arts and, most famously, um, a great um, advocate and performer in these absolutely extravagant um, court masks that occur annually throughout the 1630s and, and before
1: and do you think she should have played down the religious aspects? That instead of projecting images of her faith, that she should have just gone along with uh, the Protestant religion in England?
3: It's a good question, um, because she was she she actually was quite tactical. I guess her her approach to politics could cross confessional lines. Um, there were times in which she allied herself with Protestants. To advance various political causes. So she was astute in that respect. And I think there were times in which she played a heavier Catholic hand because she thought she had momentum. And this was in particular in the late 1630s when Rome starts to send and Charles I accept papal envoys. Now, this is for many in England, this was outrageous. That the king was accepting these papal invoice. Um so the queen, I think, was emboldened um, by this, and suddenly there start to be a number of quite high-profile conversions at court, and she does become more public about it. The her chapel at Somerset House opens, you know, to great um, fanfare and sort of visual drama. People all flock there, so I think she. I think she. was, trying to sort of build on momentum at that point. And what astonishes me, too, is even after everything that happened at the Restoration, she comes back. And she's still, uh, with great alacrity, uh, promoting this Catholic agenda and, again, reinstating her chapel and insisting, even when she's in France, you know, when she's gone back to France where she dies, insisting on the chapel being maintained in her absence.
1: Leanda, she she was certainly very, she was a remarkable woman. She had great courage. She was determined. She was very persuasive. And during the civil wars, she was uh, often on the continent raising money, raising uh, lobbying, uh, that she was quite a significant figure uh, during this time.
0: Uh, yes, she was. I mean, I would I would say um, as well on the subject of, of her Catholicism, that while I'm sure she would have been delighted if England had been converted uh, to Catholicism, I think her aim, her more realistic aim, was uh, for Charles to allow uh, Catholics to practice their faith um, as Protestants were permitted to in France. I mean, Catholics were uh, persecuted by her husband throughout his reign, and um, understandably, um, her aim was to, to 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 change his mind on this. I may say she never succeeded in doing so. Um, but um, so her, aim, her her immediate aim was rather more modest than the, con- the conversion of the entire Protestant nation. Um, but um, yes, so when the civil war came, um well, before it came, even when it was on the on the point of happening, uh, she went to Holland. And uh, everyone everyone knew the Civil War was coming, and everyone assumed, or most people assumed that uh, Charles would lose. He was in a much weaker position. Parliament had London. Um, They had most of the money, most of the men. And um, she managed to raise uh, money in Europe. She managed to raise arms, buy arms, and send arms to England. And this... Um, meant that he was able to survive the great first great battle of the Civil War in 1642, which everyone assumed he would uh, lose. And um, Parliament, uh, his opponents, uh, saw this and uh, certainly uh, the Venetian ambassador at the time said you know, that, that they, they believed that Charles would have been defeated if it hadn't been for her uh, already. And um, they were at that point game, quite, really quite determined to kill her.
1: And is it true that she briefly led an army on the field of battle in England?
0: Um, well, I don't think she was actually sitting on a hall sort of, you know, waving her sword and charging. Um, but uh, what she did do was she, you know, she returned to England. Um, she, um, uh, where she, Parliament found out where she was staying um, in this little cottage by the sea and um, their ships came in and shelled. And There's this amazing description of her and her ladies running under shell fire, um, jumping into a ditch, a man killed just yards from her, you know, dust pinging over her head. Um, and so she was certainly in the thick of it, when it came to action. And she had an army, she took to Yorkshire, and um, she spent uh, several months there uh, with her, you know, her the, her armies um, sitting on the Council of War up there, she sat on the Council of War, and her armies uh, had um, uh, several, several victories. And then when she joined Charles, this Civil War capital in Oxford, as she brought a part of her army with her and on her way south, her army uh, took a uh, on Trent, in what was described without exaggeration uh, as a bloody and desperate fight. Uh, but you know, she wasn't sort of, you know, as I said waving a
1: sword and Leander why did the civil war uh, come about you know you said that everyone could see that it was it was coming uh, there were all these clashes with parliament you had the 1641 rebellion in Ireland uh, uh, it, it, it became what became known as the war of the three kingdoms but what was yes. at the heart of, of all of this conflict
0: Ah, well, many things actually, I think one of the things uh, that led to the civil war um and, uh, and it's something which is not generally um, highlighted i think by historians uh, and so this might might surprise some listeners is that is Charles's habit of losing his wars and losing his battles. so when he first became king, he decided to take on uh, the Habsburgs um then he took on the french uh, this is um, um in the 1620s, he was defeated by both of them. Um, endless sort of terrible military humiliations. The kings are expected to win their battles, and kings who do not win their wars you know, often don't last very long. Anyway, so then um, he fell out with Parliament, uh, partly uh, about different things, really. Um, Parliament wanted him to get rid of his uh, favourite um, Duke of Buckingham sack, him, which he would, Charles wouldn't do. Um, he wouldn't... Um, they were, some of them were concerned about his reforms of the Church of England, which they, um, they considered were, anti, were anti-Calvinist. Um, there were, you know, Charles was, was raising money without parliamentary consent, which, which, which threatened the very existence of Parliament. So these were all big problems. Um, and this is why he, you know, his quarrels meant that he then didn't call Parliament for 11 years. And the reason he then had to call one again was another military defeat. This time against the Scots, who um, were not—they you know, were—it wasn't—it was—they were under the same king, but they were a separate kingdom. And when he tried to impose um, a, a prayer book, an anti-Calvinist, as they would have viewed it, prayer, prayer book, uh, the Presbyterian Scots rebelled and they defeated him yet again. Charles, had lost every war he ever fought, and so he was forced to recall Parliament and. Um, you know, these MPs were extremely angry, not having had a parliament for 11 years, being fearful that parliament might never be called again. And some of them were prepared. Well, many of them wanted to punish him would be the wrong word, but what they wanted to do was make sure he couldn't do such a thing again. And um, they, uh, the more extreme elements, managed to whip people up into such a fear that that some kind of popish tyranny was about to be instated. But they began to strip Charles of all his powers, uh, essentially, so he'd become a puppet king. And then there was, you know, those who saw that no, this is going too far. And you know, so this, this is when the kernel sort of, of the Civil War began
1: and you see him being under house arrest for a period and then he makes that decision to, to escape but that seems to be a botched job as well because he only mm-hmm. escapes for a, a short amount of time before handing himself over to others who I think he believes will help him but they become his new jailers so it just, it just it cr- increases the, the, the pressure on, uh, on his throne then and, and the demands for him to be removed permanently
0: Yes, well, exactly. Having, as I said, having been defeated by the Spanish, having been defeated by the French, having been defeated by the Scots, he's then defeated um, by the English uh, and in the civil war, first of all. And um, as you say, he escapes and he puts himself, first of all, in the hands of the Scots. Um, and um, eventually, the Scots, um, Charles won't give him what they want. What they want is the Charles to say that. Um, bishops are are an intrinsic evil. And this is one of the things that Charles will go to the scaffold for, that Charles will not, he is is in a sense a martyr of the the Episcopalian Church of England, because even with his throne and indeed eventually his life at risk, he will not say that that, uh, an Episcopal system is is wrong. And uh, so when when he won't give them what they want, the Scots sell him on to Parliament Henrietta Maria is very keen for Charles to come to terms with either the Scots or with parliament or later with the new model army, because the new model army kidnapped him essentially from, from parliamentary control. Um, but Charles won't make the concession, won't make the concessions that um, his various captors want. And um, yes, and so it ends with a kind of attempt at the second civil war, which he also loses. And uh, then his trial.
1: And do you think he could have saved his life and his throne if he had maybe uh, abdicated, or perhaps if he had uh, made some concessions to Parliament? Or once things had had had, they developed a momentum of their own that that made things impossible for him.
0: Um, yes, I think he. I think I think if he had agreed to become sort of essentially a sort of constitutional monarch. Um, then he could have survived. I wonder, I wonder if he believed that, though, because you know, defeated kings, as Charles well knew, defeated kings, or oh, monarchs, not even kings, uh, looking at his mother, of course, uh, who was executed in England, um, defeated monarchs did not tend to make old bones. Uh, they were bumped off. Um, and then it was sort of said, oh, they died of a sort of terrible head cold. Um, or they died in a fit of grief and rage, or whatever it was. Um, you know, monarchs who were overthrown did not tend to last long. And, and Charles certainly believed he was going to be murdered. So he may have, he may have, he may have wondered if there was any any point. I suspect that even if he knew that he could have saved his life, to be fair, on Charles, I think even if he if he knew for certain he could have saved his life, he would not he would not have taken that route if it meant if it meant breaking you know, what he believed to be true, which was he believed in the Episcopalian Church of England, for example. He did not believe in the superiority of the Commons.
1: OK, well, we are talking history, and tonight we are talking about the life, death and legacy of King Charles I. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be talking to David Pryor, the Head of Public Services and Outreach at the UK Parliamentary Archives, about some of the crucial documents from this period, including the death warrant issued for Charles I. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life, death and legacy of King Charles I. And I'm delighted to be joined by David Pryor, who's the Head of Public Services and Outreach at the UK Parliamentary Archives. David, you're very welcome. Pleased to be here. Can we begin with one of the most uh, interesting documents that are the death warrant for Charles I? Why was that so significant?
2: Well, basically it's because it's the only time in British history that a monarch has been tried and executed, so it has a. It's completely unique and is our most. I guess it's our most iconic document that we hold in the
1: parliamentary archives. And you have all of these fifty-nine signatories on it, including Oliver Cromwell.
2: That's right. Yeah, I think Cromwell's name is towards the top. So there's fifty-nine altogether. Um, and they've all got their seals, so they put their seals to the document when they signed it.
1: And, of course, this was a significant document in 1649, but it was uh, perhaps an even more significant document in 1660 because it allowed uh, the restored uh, monarchy and King Charles II to identify who had put his father to death.
2: That's right, yes. I mean, if your name was on that document in 1660, you were in trouble, basically. Um I mean, some of them had died. I think there was something like 37 or 38 people uh, who who were no longer around. So there was about a dozen people who were then pursued uh, and they were either executed or imprisoned. I think one person was able to argue that he'd been forced um, to sign the document by Cromwell so was actually let off. But as you you say, the the rest were basically, the so-called regicides were basically hunted down.
1: And even some of the ones who had died, they were their bodies were still dug up and their and their bodies hanged.
2: That's right. Yeah. Yes. That's 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 right. They were they were exhumed and the bodies were hung, uh, as as would have been the case if they would been executed uh, when they were alive. Yeah.
1: So revenge for those who had who had extracted that death penalty on on the father of, of King Charles the Second. Well, let's go back to some of the earlier parliamentary documents. Then uh, a very interesting one is the Petition of Right from sixteen twenty eight.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's arguable whether that's that really in the terms of Charles the first, whether that really is some, you know that's probably the most significant um, document. So it was it was it was drawn up um, by Parliament, actually drawn up by Edward Cook, the great constitutional lawyer, um, and, and Cook basically. Well, I think what, what Cook was doing was almost restating Magna Carta. Um, so there'd been obviously this dispute about Charles the first living taxation without parliamentary consent. So the Petition of Right basically says. Um, It's illegal to do this. You need parliamentary consent to raise taxes. There's a very strong echo there um, of Magna Carta. Um, And it was actually agreed to by Charles. It it became an act of parliament. It's quite a large piece of parchment um, in our collections. Uh, It was agreed to by Charles. Obviously, subsequently, I think he regretted um, agreeing to it. But I think it's arguable that it's it's in that family tree of great constitutional documents that stretch back all the way, as I say, to 1215 and Magna Carta.
1: And is there a sense that Charles just didn't properly understand the, the importance of Parliament and that, you know, you see it with so many kings and queens over the centuries, this, this refusal to kind of understand that wars require money, with money you'll need to go to Parliament and that if, you're, if you want these wars and you're not able to finance them, your power is going to be threatened if you show all of this disrespect to Parliament
2: yeah i mean he was he was what we would call he was basically trying to rule as an absolute desmonic so he was trying to, to to bypass parliament and and use other methods to raise taxes which similarly met with with obstacles so he tries to raise taxes outside of parliament and fails he then has to go to parliament and therefore is 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 kind of caught in the in the argument with parliament about raising the taxes so this is a significant um uh, moment, I think in terms of our archive, I, I was thinking what's, what sometimes archives speak volumes in, in a way when there's a gap. And if you look at the records of the parliaments that we have, sorry, obviously go up to 1629, and then there's a gap. There's 11 years when Charles ruled without parliament until 1640, and obviously there were no records. In a way, that gap is is very sort of poignant in terms of what Charles was actually doing and uh, reigning as a sort of absolutist king.
1: Leander, is there a sense that you see the political weaknesses of of Charles during this period that he is making these misjudgments about what he can get away with in terms of his the role of Parliament?
0: Yes. Um Charles wasn't a good judge of people. Um that was part of the prob- that was really part of the problem. He couldn't read people well. And um so this would so this made him given to um overreaction sometimes. He wasn't good at playing off one person against another, um, as he might have done if he was a more astute king. He tended to lump everyone who disagreed with him together, and that certainly made him weaker. He managed to unite his enemies rather than divide them.
1: (laughs) Which is never a good thing. David, can you tell us about the Naseby letters? Uh, uh, When were they written and why are they significant?
2: So, So the Naseby letters were a cash of letters that were found on the battlefield at Naseby. After the battle, they were captured by the parliamentarians. So the letters the letters themselves, I think, date from the early 1640s through to 1645. And they're a combination of letters to the king from some of his advisors about some strategic and military and parliamentary political issues, but also include some letters um, from his wife, Henrietta Maria. Um, so that's part of the reason why they're significant. Never reason is they're in cipher, so they were using a code to um, for these for these letters to keep to keep them secret. So I think mean, that's what makes them so intriguing. And in the case of some of the letters, they were originally written in French, so there's a double. <laughs> the kind of double deciphering and decoding and going on with these letters. Um, so I think that's that's really so so when they were captured by the parliamentarians, they were subsequently published and became known as the King's Cabinet. So they were used as evidence um essentially against him. Um I think I think that's basically why they're so why they're so um Significant. some of the, I mean some of the letters from his wife are quite touching and refer to this kind of you can see the relationship between the two of them um, in the letters, so there's a kind of there is a very strong personal dimension to them
1: and is there a sense as well that they have good intelligence on on what the parliamentary army is doing, uh, who's in charge, how many soldiers they have, where they are, and so on?
2: Certainly there are, there was there's letters to people like Prince Rupert uh, amongst the cash, so they would show evidence of what was going on yeah
1: and and Leander, again, you see the significance of Henrietta Maria and the the tender relationship they have, and I suppose the 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 involvement that she has in terms of the military affairs
0: yes, indeed, um, it was rather more than a tender relationship. I mean she saved his bacon uh, on more than one occasion uh, during the Civil War, not least at the beginning um, and these letters uh, were. Uh, propaganda gold. I mean, they were heavily, you know, edited and presented in a very particular way uh, because the parliamentarians uh, wanted to sell the idea that uh, Charles was being ruled by his wife, uh, like so Adam by Eve. It was a sort of the old misogynist line, really. They were taking the parliamentarians.
1: And, and David, when we look at these parliamentary records, what insights do you think you get into King Charles the into this period of history?
2: Um, that 's an interesting question. I, I think the thing about the records that we have, and obviously there are big gaps because the eighteen thirty four fire in Parliament, which destroyed most of the records of the House of Commons means we're we 're kind of short on evidence of what happened in the House of Commons um, during this period. I think what what you tend to get from our material is we're possibly with the exception of the Naseby material, is a kind of official view of what was going on. The Naseby material is an exception to that. I think the other exception. Is some of the material that we have relating to the Earl of Stratford um, and his um, execution. So, some of, a lot of there was quite a lot of material that survived uh, in our collections relating to the Strafford trial, for instance, and Charles's um, plea for mercy for Strafford in 1641. So, there are there are occasional, I think, personal insights into what was what was going on um, in his. Head, But I think a lot of a lot of it tends to be official. So we get basically we had a constitutional version uh, of, of what was happening.
1: And in terms of the trial record, how does Charles come across during that period?
2: Well, I mean, he's, he's pretty obstinate. Um, and uh, when presented with the charges, obviously denies the charges that he attempted uh, to uh, go around Parliament and cause the civil war. So he's pretty the, the trial record is a pretty sort of straight record of of his position.
1: I've read in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography that this was his finest hour in the way he mocked the judges and defied them and uh, demanded to see their authority. And it for three days, he definitely seems to... It didn't end up well for him, but for three days, he seems to have done a lot of the running in terms of, of him being in control, of attacking uh, this kind of show trial as he saw it. Leander, would you agree with that? Was this his finest hour in 1649?
0: Yes, I mean we were talking about propaganda earlier, and um, Charles finally having having sort having sort of been rather bad at it uh, earlier in his reign, um, began to grasp the power of propaganda rather too late for him to save his own life. But um, yes, it was he he did put on a very powerful performance, and um, at the same time he had uh, uh, sort of co-written co-authored this uh, work which was published um, at this time, actually almost immediately afterwards when he was um, executed, which essentially gave his side of the story as to how, why the Civil War had occurred and what he was fighting and dying for, and which would be immensely um, powerful royalist propaganda, really, after his, after his death.
1: And we mentioned that only fifty nine or the fifty nine signed the death warrant. Why wasn't it a higher number? I think that was only about one third of the the number that it could have been. Were people unwilling to put their signatures to something that was going to be so controversial and and you know potentially so dangerous for them?
0: Uh, yes, they were. I mean it was extremely unpopular uh, in the country charles 's execution. It was you know carried out um, very carefully. Uh, and, and relatively uh, quietly, people were worried about not only not only how people in England might react, but uh, people across across Europe. Um, you, know, he, you know, Charles Charles's wife, as we were mentioning earlier, was uh, was uh, was French. So how would how would the Bourbons react? Um, how would how would how would you know all, all sorts of people in, in in Europe react to this to this uh, execution? Um, there could have been a foreign invasion. Um, all sorts of things.
1: And what do you think Leander then motivated it was it this uh, religious fervor was it uh, a sense that Charles had betrayed what they believed in in religious and political beliefs or or you know was it the emotion and the heat of the moment?
0: Uh, no, it was because Charles if Charles had recognized the court then he would have recognized uh, the uh, the fact that uh, the the, the, Co- the House of Commons had the right and had the right of Commons had the right to veto any of his decisions and was, uh, was essentially superior to him. Uh, then they might have uh, then they probably would have allowed him uh, to live um, with the sort of uh, threat hanging over him that if he didn't do as he was told and you know something bad would happen. Um, that's what I think they they hoped for, but because Charles wouldn't accept the court. He had to die. That's what that's what Cromwell warned his fellow judges essentially before the trial began. If you know, if the king, you know, won't won't accept um, the superiority of the commons, if 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 he won't accept the court, then he's, you know, we're gonna have to cut off his head with his crown on it.
1: Well, my thanks to David Pryor The Head of Public Services and Outreach At the UK Parliamentary Archives For joining me for this section We're going to continue with our discussion Of the life, death and legacy Of King Charles I Right after this break Well, welcome back to Talking History As we debate the life, death and legacy Of Charles I I'm delighted to be rejoined By my panel of experts Leander Delisle Historian, writer, broadcaster And the author of The award-winning White King The Tragedy of Charles I And Professor Aaron Griffey Associate Professor in Art History at the University of Auckland in New Zealand and the author of On Display, Henrietta Maria and the Materials of Magnificence at the Stuart Court. Erin, can we talk about Henrietta Maria then and how she discovered the news of the death of her husband because she was in Paris at the time and I think because of bad communications it was about a week before she heard the news.
3: Yes. um, Yes, that's right. Well, apparently she was pulled aside and um, told and What I think we would call today a a nervous breakdown and essentially um, left to go spend time in a in a convent. And certainly you can see by contemporary accounts and by her own letters, indeed, of that period from, you know, in the 1650s, that she does seem to turn um, even more to religion and spends a lot of time in convents, eventually founding um, a convent herself in the northwest sort of side of uh, Paris and spending extended periods there. Uh, But obviously, she was never the same. um, As you, I think, um, can imagine, she was never the same.
1: And Erin, of course, we have to remember her age as well. She was only 39 when this happened and yeah. uh, 15 when they got married. So, you know, that we have to take that into consideration as well.
3: Yes, yes, that she was, that she was young. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, what's interesting, too, what happens in the wake of that is, yes, you have this um, initial um, extended period in a convent. But you also find her coming back with um, with a mission, and that is continuing to raise money for the cause and um, really promoting um, her son's um, rightful place as the heir to the Stuart dynasty. And so it's quite interesting. She's speaking even from... Quite soon after her husband's death in letters. She's very, very focused on that cause.
1: And what happens in, in the later years then, especially after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660? She returns briefly to England. I think she spends her final years in France from about 1665 onwards. But what does that mean for her, the fact that the monarchy has been restored and her son is on the throne?
3: Th- there could be no prouder mother. And in fact, she, she says, really essentially that in um, letters. She was beside herself. And I think she was bewildered with which, you know, the final pace, you know, of it all coming to fruition when it happened. And she essentially wanted to get on the first boat over to England. I think for her, it was um, vindication of, uh, of her husband and the Stuart dynasty. But I think, too, this was also about showcasing herself, you know, that she was not cowering in a corner. You know, again, this courage that, that Leanda talked about. And so, yes, she comes, parades in. She's um, excited. The welcome is um, rather less rapturous when she arrives. She's not a, a particularly popular person at the restoration and remains deeply polarizing. But she comes and essentially wants to reinstate her place and um, and have a, a, a palace, a court, a presence um, at the restoration court. So she spends some time there um, soon after the restoration. And then she comes back for a few years. And she only leaves in 1665. And it's the summer of 1665. There was particularly virulent outbreak of the plague, um, very deadly. And she leaves um, in a rush and tells um, someone in a letter that she'll be back in a year once things calm down. But she never comes back. She she ends up dying in France. But her health is also fragile. And um, the accounts um, of her first physician in England are fascinating. Um, so we, we find out about her um, tendency to sort of stomach problems and later in life, toothache. Um, she, she's complaining about a lot of health problems. And we now think that towards the end of her life that she was probably suffering from tuberculosis. So I think when she finally did go back in 1665 with the plague, she was frail and weak and couldn't really make that trip back to England. But fascinating, she maintained the household in England too. She was not going to give up even that kind of virtual presence at the Restoration Court in London.
1: And Leanda I'm struck by something you said earlier about how there is so much public interest about the Tudor dynasty and uh, so many dramatizations there and novels and so on and it captures the imagination in a way that the Stuart monarchy hasn't and yet from our discussion tonight it's clear that you know a 15 year old French princess marrying the English king you have civil wars and you have international wars you have Cromwell uh, a king being executed, you know there's definitely more than enough here for uh, a, a series or, or two or three and and why hasn't it captured the imagination in the same way as the Tudors has?
0: Well, as I said, I think it's partly the presentation of you know Charles as this sort of father, sort of uninteresting weak figure, and also the demonization of Henrietta Maria I think Erin and I would agree on that. I mean she's a, you know, she's a, a, a very interesting, intelligent uh, woman. Um, and she's been presented as this sort of, you know, ridiculous sort of liberty um and, um and 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 also the many other figures in in at court and in the wider country that the focus hasn't hasn't fallen on. I mean, but I mean, for example, I believe there's a I the French are bringing out a film or a new series of uh, Dumas' Three Musketeers. Now, this the Three Musketeers is set. Uh, during this period. Um, And, um, you know, you could tell a a different, more Anglo-centric version of it, because what people don't know, for example, is that Henrietta Maria also had this great duel with sort of a political duel with Cardinal Richler. um, And that she she, she and Buckingham had these incredible fights and that Buckingham tried to destroy her in the same way that... um, Thomas Cromwell did with Anne, Anne Boleyn, and um, yeah, so there's just so much there to tell. I think that the civil war is ex- I have often thought about this, think, as you can imagine. The civil war itself is tricky, perhaps because it's expensive. If you're doing anything which involves lots of you know, battles and things, that's expensive. But there are different parts of this of, of Charles's reign which would also make fascinating. It's very disappointing that um, there isn't some more about the Stuarts.
1: Absolutely. And in, and in Alexander Dumas' sequel to The Three Musketeers, 20 years after, it's set during the time of the execution of Charles I and the Musketeers head over to, to England to try and rescue him.
0: That's, exactly, that's true. And, 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 you know, Henrietta Maria, when, when she was... Erin was describing how, you know, the terrible when she heard that her husband had been executed. Um, but she was t- what was so awful was just before she was told that he was, he was dead she'd been told that he had been uh, rescued by the crowd on his way to the scaffold. So I think when she heard that it was in fact a lie and he was dead, it had come as an extra shock. Also there are other aspects to this period, which are very interesting. I think political aspects. Um, so for example, this is really the beginning, the real beginning of the slave trade, the African slave trade, the slave trade from Africa to the Caribbean. And, uh, and was, A lot of that was managed um, and run by um, parliamentarians, people who were talking a lot about you know, freedom and the um, rights of you know, people's rights and the parliament's rights. So they were talking a lot about that on the one hand. On the, on the other hand, uh, and they created this sort of colony of Providence Island, is supposed to be a sort of godly community, but they were shipping slaves to it. Um, the Earl of Warwick, who was a great parliamentarian, uh, head of the navy during part of the Civil War, he was a you know he was a slaver, uh, and I find that side interesting, and that is a side as well which I think would make a, a very interesting um, television series. Um, and you know, you know, there's a very famous picture of, of, of Charles and Henrietta Maria with a with an African groom, so. You know, there's, there's this, there is this side of the period as well that I, I think it, it has been overlooked and, 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 and would be contemporary, because, you know, you want history for our time.
1: And Leander, the title, The White King, it comes yes. from, uh, I think, a, a story that he was crowned in white. Is, is, is that true? And, or is that, again, part of the, the later mythology?
0: Uh, turns out to be a, a, a sort of a, a myth, um, and and it's all and it's sort of used by both sides. On so the one you have the royalists saying yes, you know, he was dressed in white because you know the symbol of purity and mastermind. and the parliamentarian saying yes, he was dressed in white because this is this is you know he this way he fulfilled the sort of prophecy of Merlin as you know a disastrous um, king who dressed in who dressed in white. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting, but the, the coronation, I think, was problematic at the time. And again, it's quite interesting because, of course, we have a coronation now. And um, I, I think many aspects of the coronation were seen as um, popish and had been actually since the advent of Protestantism under the reign of the, the boy King Edward VI. Um, it, you know, there's nothing very Calvinist about a coronation. And so, as Charles himself seemed to be an anti calvinist I suppose that made people people's skins itch. Um, And it's interesting hearing people talk about Charles III's coronation. And I think that's quite interesting because it hasn't been in Latin. Um, It's it's, you know, it's the Church of England was Latin is associated with the Catholic Church, so people are still getting sort of confused on that.
1: And Leander, given that you know, it's the day after the coronation of Charles III. Is it interesting that after Charles II, the son of Charles I, there wasn't a monarch called Charles uh, all the way up to the twenty-first century? It didn't. It wasn't a name that that people were returning to for the heir to the throne.
0: No, it's very. I'd say it's, it's extraordinary um, that he was named Charles. Um, and but what is? I think it's because I think it's because uh, Queen Elizabeth II. Um, felt, you know, she, her Scottish roots were very important to her. Um, She died in Scotland, as we know. And she named both her first, she gave both her first children's Stuart names. So you have Charles and Anne. Um, And that is interesting. And so that's, it seems to be associated with her love of Scotland. The other thing which is quite interesting is that Nothing, all the, the royal regalia, the coronation regalia was all destroyed after the execution of Charles I, with, except for one thing, um, and that was the anointing spoon, which was used yesterday uh, to anoint uh, Charles III.
1: So Aaron, how do you think we should view the legacy of Charles I and indeed Henrietta Maria people who were unfairly maligned by history or people who who perhaps whose story still needs to be uh to be to be widely told because of it, it is so interesting and has so many resonances uh, for both understanding the seventeenth century and the world today I
3: think you you said precisely the right answer there um I think they fascinating for a world of reasons, Um, not only for the sort of riotous and rich, um, broader context in which they lived, um, but in terms of their their characters, I think one thing that strikes me about both of them, and I'll be keen to hear what Leonda says, is they seem to me to have been both highly principled people and... um, and I, I wonder if that makes them more appealing or less appealing for something like um, film. But they really, really did believe earnestly in their causes. And um, I think Charles um, was an incredibly um, complex uh, person. And I think another thing that should be sort of um, understood and um, perhaps celebrated about um, Charles I and Henrietta Maria is, is the love story. Um, this was an arranged marriage that turned out to be um, a love match in the end, um, which is also certainly not um, the norm of the time.
1: So Leander, I'll leave the final word to you on the legacy of Charles and indeed Henrietta Maria.
3: I, I, would, I agree with
0: Erin. I think it is, they were both highly principled beings. And, and I think one of the things that would, would, should actually be very interesting about them is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. can both be virtuous and wrong. Um, and that is an interesting, an interesting aspect of, of, of being human. It's, it's just a great story of color, belief, And, you know, violence and love and everything, everything, everything that's fascinating in life.
1: Okay, well I think that's a perfect note on which to end our discussion tonight my thanks to my brilliant panel of experts Leanne Delisle the author of the award winning White King The Tragedy of Charles I Professor Aaron Griffey of uh, the University of Auckland in New Zealand and we also heard from David Pryor the Head of Public Services and Outreach at the UK Parliamentary Archives Well that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History My thanks to my producer Maraisa Sullivan and to Peter Malloy on sound We've got more debate and discussion next week so I hope you can join Join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.